This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Art, in its many forms, can play a powerful role in highlighting inequities. I think George Floyd and Breonna Taylor really tipped the, the scales for us. And really, the gist of the exhibit is climate justice is racial justice. Art can also provide new ways of thinking and viewing ourselves in relationship to the earth. If we can imagine the total destruction of everything we know, every system that binds us, then even if it's after complete collapse, we can start anew. As we focus on reducing emissions and switching to green energy, it's essential that we also make the future more just and not treat some communities as disposable. We have to address the injustices that have happened historically in order for us to move forward and address these issues. Activism, art, and environmental justice. Up next on Climate One. On this show, we often try to shine a light on the vast inequities that exist between those who benefit from extracting and burning fossil fuels and those who suffer its impacts first and worst. Art offers a lens for exploring energy and mineral extraction and challenging audiences' worldviews in ways that can be subtle and disturbing. With that in mind, we hosted a discussion with some of the people behind San Francisco State University's recent exhibition, Clearly Polluted, the fight for environmental justice in the Bay Area. It was co-curated with community advisors and advocates who share their lived experiences and ongoing efforts for climate and social justice. Christine Abadia Fogarty is Associate Director at the Global Museum at San Francisco State University. LaDonna Williams is Program Director at All Positives Possible, a grassroots organization working to obtain environmental justice for historically disadvantaged people. Doug Harris is a former professional basketball player and now a documentary filmmaker. They joined me for a conversation with a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California to discuss the role of art and media in surfacing climate and environmental justice impacts. Madonna Williams began by sharing her personal story. I started as a teen, teen mother, and my first apartment away from home. And I lived there for 10 years, had my first two children there. And it was a beautiful housing area. They didn't call them projects, the typical low-income projects. They were townhomes. And so, and, and in back of it was also a huge playground for the kids. And the school kids would come there for their PE. So we had no idea that we were actually living on a toxic dump. But we should have known because it was no fence line and I was actually an apartment away from PG&E. We saw burnings that at one point we thought were beautiful at night because it lit up. And we also had a farm that was on the other side. And in the beginning, the animals looked okay. But as time went on, they began to take on this strange look. And my children would bring home two-headed frogs, literally, because it was a stream that ran between the property and also PG&E. And so, again, not putting it together, 10 years, almost to the date when I moved there past, I get a phone call that men in bubble suits appeared at Midway Village. This is in Daly City, a couple of blocks down from the Cow Palace. And the phone call was... Look like spacemen are out here. These men are all covered up. Come to find out they were doing a cleanup 
without notifying the residents. They called it a beautification, mm. which is why I use the term environmental injustice can appear to be an art of illusion. <laughs> it is an art of illusion. Some people say, oh, it disappears that way. No, it absolutely is because most of us were fooled into believing we were in safe, sanitary, clean housing, only to discover we lived on top of 365 plus carcinogens that now that we look back, we recognize we're tied into the many trips that we made to the doctor. My daughter, um, unfortunately, was born with cerebral palsy. We played in the area as a kid. And I just thought it was unique to me. But again, reflecting back, I recognized, wait a minute, we were hearing the ambulance regularly. People from the community residents were being taken to the hospital. But again, this is 10 years reflection of living on this, this toxic dump that we, when we discovered it was toxic, we thought, well, We've got to tell the agencies. We've got to tell the authorities. They don't know what we're, what we're discovering, only to find out with the many documents they've known and for 50, 60 years and counting that this site was contaminated. Wow. So we were the last to know. Yeah, that's quite powerful and, and not uh, unique to San Francisco or California. Those sorts of stories are happen many places, unfortunately. Christine, Daly City is adjacent to uh, the western part of San Francisco, where San Francisco State is located. Uh, that area, I learned recently, was zoned for single family for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you learn about the history of the university's neighborhood in researching the clearly polluted exhibition? Yeah, in our research, you know, we found that, uh, you know, redlining happened. And... Uh, it's something that's happened over time. It affects not just San Francisco, but everywhere. And that San Francisco state is right next to Daly City, which was also developed you know, on that land. So just that realization that we are on um, toxic land was really kind of eye-opening and having to deal with that. So the exhibit actually explores these kinds of situations where um, history has impacted the land and how we live and how it affects the people who live in these neighborhoods. And just to kind of unpack it and spell it out, that part of San Francisco was zoned single family housing yep. to keep out mm -hmm. people of color, probably yes. particularly black people mm -hmm. um, in that part. And that's again, that is not unique to, to San Francisco. Doug, after playing professional basketball, you started making documentary films. One of your films, North Richmond, Past, Present, and Future, chronicles the story of that city near San, on San Francisco Bay that is home to the Chevron Refinery, one of the single largest sources of pollution in California. The refinery has operated for more than 100 years. Tell us about the restrictive covenants that dictated who could live where and how that relates to the city of Richmond, California today. Well, when black people came, migrated west from different parts of the south and other parts of the country, they primarily came here to the Bay Area to work in the shipyards. And so those that lived in Richmond, they were relegated to live in one of two areas. One, the housing projects, and two, the unincorporated community of North Richmond that neighbors 
which was then Standard Oil, but today is Chevron. And so the black community, that was pretty much the, the hub of the black community in West Contra Costa County. And they were relegated to live there. They couldn't live anywhere else if they wanted to own their own property and build homes. And, and so there's been a long history of unhealthiness for those residents. And I worked in North Richmond during the 90s for like five, six years. And I noticed that a lot of the young kids had asthma and a lot of their grandparents, you know, they were, it was cancer riddled the whole community. And this was before I started doing documentaries. But when I started doing this four part documentary series about the history of North Richmond, I started to understand what was really going on in relation to the Chevron refinery and the effects that not only Chevron, but Gen General Chemical had on that community. And so doing documentary films has really opened my eyes as to the real serious issues of environmental justice. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a former ball player. What do, what do we know about environmental justice? But, but it's really opened up my eyes and it, it's made me want to explore and, and even talk about it because it's through producing documentaries that it gives me a chance to educate people about what's really going on. Christine, you live in Oakland, a city divided by freeways that have different rules for diesel trucks, mm -hmm. which was new to me recently. For 70 years, heavy trucks have been banned on the 580 freeway, which goes through wealthier neighborhoods, and heavy, mainly diesel-powered trucks are allowed on the 880 freeway, which runs through lower-income communities of color. So what's been your emotional journey learning about these things in your own community? And, you know, were you impacted in ways you didn't anticipate? Well, you know, we live in um, an area called Maxwell Park, which in the course of our research for our exhibit was completely tangential. You know, the Maxwell Park used to be like an exclusive community for white people. Um, and then over time, you know, as white flight went out to the suburbs, um, people of color and, and black folks would come in and move into those properties because, you know, they, the property became affordable to, to, to buy. Um, but then over time, you know, it's the systemic disinvestment as the wealth left the city and that part where we live, um, you know, all the infrastructure, all the conveniences are not easy to get to. Right. So you look down our street and you see potholes. When it rains, you see the drain, the water just flow against the drains, but they don't really go down into sewers. They just are on the street and contributing to the pothole problem. Um, you're almost in a food desert. There's not really very many corner shops that you could go to to just get fresh fruit or vegetable. You have to drive like five miles away to get to it. And you can hear the freeway noise and um, the air pollution that you get too. So um, it's kind of weird to like live in this place. I love the neighborhood and you know, a lot of young families are moving back in and really building up the neighborhood. But I think the realization is like, wow, am I part of this problem? You know, is this the gentrification that's happening that mm -hmm. we moved here like what, 10 or so years ago um, because it was affordable to us 
Um, but then you see, you know, folks coming out of San Francisco into these affordable places, and then you just realize, wow, am I also part of this problem? Sounds like this was a real eye-opening mm -hmm. experience for yeah. you. Uh, LaDonna, you're program director of All Positives Possible, a grassroots community-based organization working to obtain environmental justice for historically disadvantaged and long-term high-risk exposure populations. How are you trying to address the injustices we've been talking about and portrayed through the art we've seen here? And what role does art play in your work? Art plays an important role. For instance, the storytelling and story sharing mm -hmm. is what we're doing here. And that's, that's an art. Um, and she touched me when she talks about Oakland because as they transition, as they say, into these neighborhoods, right around Oakland, what do you see? Blue roofs. You know what blue roofs are? The tarp that black people use to live under now because they no longer have wood homes or, you know, homes made of sturdy cement. They're literally living on the street and they're an ignored population. We talk about environmental justice. We came up with all positives possible because what our communities are dealing with, you really go into this deep depression. And we had to figure out how do we reverse that? You know, you got to put it in your mind first to push past that, that, that fear that, first of all, I've come from a toxic dump, living on it, didn't know it, moved to Vallejo, only to find out that we're still being hit by so many sources of pollution. The refinery, Phillips 66, New Star Industries that blew up on us in 2019. The ships, huge tankers that come through that spill toxins into the water. And then you turn on your water and any given day, it's brown. And the authorities tell you, oh, don't worry about it. Just drink it, but just cautiously drink it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but bring a bottle to a meeting and ask them to drink it and you're going to get a whole different reaction. Mm -hmm. So what we've taken on is the, the actual lived experiences of the everyday folks who are historically disadvantaged, high risk long-term that live along the shorelines, whether it's Bayshore, I was born and raised in San Francisco. My dad and family fished as we lived off the land. You come through Richmond, along the shoreline, same thing, Rodale, Vallejo. We as black folks and on that front line literally live off the land, but we're forced to live off of polluted land. And so when we come in these spaces and we hear environmental justice for all, or we're in it, you know, we're all in this together. Or even when we give these presentations, you hear the term black and brown, black and, black and, they won't even focus on the fact that black folks by and large has systemically been placed in these on these toxic dumps that folks all know about. And then we just go on with life is normal and it's not. And we won't stop and address specifically the injustices and the racism that has happened to black folks without adding other populations in. It's not a us against them. We really are to share this earth, but you cannot continue this injustice against black folks and we go on and act like 
it doesn't exist and we can take it from here and move forward. We can't move forward until we stop and address what has happened to us. And that is the redlining, the systemic racism that have allowed agencies and our government, even our president right now, if you mention black specific stuff, he's going to move on to the next subject. Even some of the black leaders will do that. I've called several black leaders to say, hey, what about this reparations bill? They don't want to hear it. But if you say immigration, oh, yeah, we have resources for that. We have to address the injustices that have happened historically in order for us to move forward and address these issues. That is the term all positives possible. But we have to include the racism, the discrimination, the pollution. Like we have these huge injustices that go on under the term of climate change. And for us, climate change, environmental injustice, environmental racism, they're, they're not separate. There is no line that divides them. They're all encompassing. Doug, your thoughts on that and, and, you know, and what role you think that art plays in you know, addressing storytelling and other forms of art and addressing the injustices that LaDonna just so eloquently laid out? Well, I think it's important for people to be properly educated in learning what took place 50 years ago to put us in that position. And I really uh, admire the work that you're doing, LaDonna, in terms of addressing those things. And that's what I try to do myself in terms of uh, being able to educate people through history, through the work that I do uh, in filmmaking. People say that it's an art. And yeah, it's an art, but I, I, I look at it more as educating people. So that's it's a one, combination of art, education, and activism. <laughs> and one really powerful thing happening there, of course, an intersection of education and our, the national myth or story we tell ourselves is the 1619 Project, which is trying to say, now, let's start in 1619, not 1776. Start at a different place and have a little bit of a different story. Uh, LaDonna, Doug spoke about the need for education. Mm -hmm. Art and music are often the first to get cut when yeah. school budgets shrink. We know that story in California, thanks to Prop 13 and others. Get California recently passed another ballot initiative that will increase arts funding in K-12 schools by up to a billion dollars a year. Growing up, you went to field trips to museums. Your kids, yes. not so much. So how did those visits enrich your life and inform who you are today? And how do you think museums can amplify the stories we're talking about? Well, fortunately, I grew up in San Francisco. So, you know, we went to the Cow Palace and experienced a rodeo. Mm -hmm. We went to the Palace of Fine Arts. We went to the museums and we even took field trips, uh, Union Square, where the teacher would take us into these art stores where you would see a painting. And back then, I'm not going to tell you all how old I am, <laughs> but you seen a little ticket and we were trying to read it and we go, oh, that's $20 with a bunch of zeros. And the teacher says, no, that's $20,000 for a painting. You know, so we got that rich experience, but I have six children and you fast forward it now. And most of the schools, at least the schools in our areas, do not take the kids on these field trips anymore. And reflecting back on that, that is such a missed opportunity to enrich our kids' lives. I've had to do it on my own and on my own dime, but that's an investment in my children. We should all do that. 
Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. And climate action begins with talking about it. Coming up, the disproportionate impact of energy extraction and refining on communities of color. They tell us, well, you know, uh, maybe, you know, consider moving. Well, how about consider not putting polluting industry in our communities? That's up next. Let's return to my conversation with three guests behind San Francisco State University's recent exhibition, Clearly Polluted, the fight for environmental justice in the Bay Area. We're talking about how art can help elevate and educate people about environmental justice. Christine Abadia Fogarty is Associate Director at the Global Museum at San Francisco State University. Doug Harris is a documentary filmmaker. And LaDonna Williams is Program Director at the Grassroots Environmental Justice Organization, All Positives Possible. She spoke about the need for having conversations that are often uncomfortable. They call them difficult conversations. They're not difficult to me because if I can hold paperwork, and see my family on both sides. I can tell you the name of two of my sl the slave owners that held rights to my family. Eliza Wright, which is a white woman, and Bill Smith, who was a Cherokee. They both owned slaves on both ends of my family's lineage. And I'm not supposed to speak of that in these venues because they say it's polarizing or it it creates this, you know, uncomfortableness. Well, damn it, be uncomfortable. Because if I can trace my family's history back a hundred years and see that they've been enslaved and they've went through this tr this traumatic life to try and make a better life for the generations to come. Who am I not to grab that and take that and turn it into an art of storytelling? Because that's what my parents did for me. They told the stories before, and, and mind you, these documents that I've gotten has only been within the last two years. And that's thanks to social media and the advancement of technology. I can now trace my family's history previous to that. I only knew about it through the storytelling, which is that art and education that my parents talked about. And I used to say, oh, my God, I can't stand old people in these stories. <laughs> and now I'm the old people in these stories, <laughs> you know, but that was how they connected us to who we are and how we need to move forward. If we're talking about justice for all, which I absolutely believe in. An injustice to anyone is an injustice to all of us. But you cannot ignore the injustice and the contribution that black people made to build this country for free. And then we move forward in these spaces, like even this beautiful uh, uh, technology, this building is awesome. It's beautiful. You guys got all the amenities. But you go a few blocks down the street and we're looking at Hunter's Point and there's technically black homeless people put on the in these trailer homes. And the sickest part about it is this black leadership that made the decision to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
I bring it in there. Sorry to get you off script, but if I'm given a platform, it is my calling to share this story and help educate through storytelling, through art, through documentary, through interchanging, that I am obligated to share this anytime I get an opportunity. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Christine, why don't you tell us about Clearly Polluted, what, how it came about and what you're trying to achieve with this? Yeah, so Clearly Polluted was our pandemic project. It took two years to do. Um, <laughs> and it was inspired by... Uh, you know, all of the social justice demonstrations that were happening in 2020, I think George Floyd and Breonna Taylor really tipped the, the scales for us. And really the gist of the exhibit is climate justice is racial justice. So we wanted to explore that. And it's such a universal topic. We came up with an outline that just identified the themes that we wanted to explore. So themes of displacement, environmental impacts, what pollutants, what what it looks like visibly, what, what was that pollution, and then the resilience, because we wanted not to for it to be so doom and gloom. We wanted it to end with some hope and to kind of mobilize um, our young folks to like, listen, you can do things and uh, you can have a small impact by just, you know, bringing a usable bag to the grocery store or, you know, connecting with the Black Unity Center on campus and seeing what uh, food banks and stuff that you could contribute to. So uh, part of the story of it, we knew we had this basic outline and the story was fleshed out when we reconnected to Doug and LaDonna and seven other community participants. We knew that their stories would flesh out this outline. And in fact, their stories became the exhibit. So if you were to go to the exhibit, which is available online, um, we don't use objects, we use photographs. Uh, we feature the videos in particular, and we pulled quotes, um, really impactful quotes from um, the exhibit to become the objects, to become the story. And that's what we want the Global Museum to be, is not so much, because museums have um, a colonial history right? Uh, they have a long ways to go to combat that. But for us as a university museum, we want to be able to use our platform to combat that, to share the storytelling with the communities that are affected um, by the objects that we exhibit, by the stories we want to communicate, um, and really just become a facilitator and be that platform. Let's talk about that colonial history of museums, because you know museums are very tied in with wealthy people that have extracted a lot of wealth, probably connected to the types of mm -hmm. sources of pollution we've been talking ab about here. So, and some museums have uh, gone through a journey of reflecting on their role. You know, Teddy Roosevelt statue was removed from the Museum of Natural History in in New York, and others. So, how is your view of museums? Uh, changed going through this project on environmental racism. Yeah, I I still kind of grapple with it. It's like I love museums. I want I I think you learn so much about the world through the objects that they display. And museum studies I think is positioned to educate our students to be change agents, right? To think outside of that western eurocentric box and share uh, and facilitate stories with the communities involved to really privilege the makers and the source communities who um, whose stories are latent in these objects. And to also bring in artists who I think are so important to, you know, they're the pulse of, of 
life now, right? They're the ones who are actually living it. Um, and to bring all this together, I think, is the future for museums is to be able to step aside and maybe share and have artists, community members just share their stories from there instead of scholars interpreting what they're hearing. Less kind of elitist. Yeah. LaDonna, California has a suite of climate laws and policies that direct funding to underserved communities as part of its move from fossil fuel to cleaner energy. There's cap and trade funds, and that's come about because just legislation and pressure from environmental justice activists like yourself. Mm -hmm. The Biden administration has elevated the role of climate justice and its policies and appointments has been saying they're more active in that area. What kind of funding are your peers and Black-led organizations seeing, and what kind of funding are you seeing? Is there more money flowing to the places that need it? Well, they say it is, um, and on the surface it appears to be, but when you, when you compare the average grant for a Black-led organization working on Black-specific issues, and I focus on that because the historically disadvantaged, highest-risk, longest-term um, exposed population is still Black folks. Yet, when you look at the funding pool, the funding averages $2,500 to, say, $5,000 for a Black group that is working on just too many issues to count. And then you look at these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations, who come to us in the form of listening sessions and, hey, let's have these you know, workshops. And the whole time they're taking down your intellectual properties and your mm. experiences. Another form of extraction. Absolutely. <laughs> and then they go and they write because they have the, the grant writers. They have the, the money to, to you know, engage and travel around. Um, they come up with the million dollar mm -hmm. grant. So yeah, you're giving us more grants now than you've given us before, which was very minimal. But when you look at the amount that we are getting, it's given us just enough to fail and it gives them enough to succeed. And many times you have residents that have been in a community that have never moved out of their community and have taken on these issues and tried to get funding and could not get funding. And then they have new folks that come in and take over the community's issues and voices. And they literally walk them through the process of getting funding through whatever their, their programs are, where they want to hear new voices and, and new uh, approaches. We don't have a problem with that. We welcome growth. But you can't come into my hood and overlook me and my issues. And that's what happens. And so when we hear Biden's new proposals. J and J40, Justice 40. Justice 40, <clears throat> EJ40, whatever. And Gavin Newsom and, you know, at one point they were talking about this surplus and how much money was going towards EJ and what have you. Our communities aren't seeing it. We still have the major potholes. We still have, you know, uh, polluted water coming through our pipes and and living on top of a tox toxic dump that has not received proper cleanup. So on the surface, it appears, oh, yeah, you know, we've got all this money coming through. But we have yet to see this fair distribution. We hear the racial equity. We hear, oh, yeah, we, we're taking on these financial uh, equitable projects where we're, where we're looking. We ain't acting on it. We're looking at, you know, different approaches. But in the meantime, they're still 
using that same funding structure where we usually have to go to a larger white organization to beg them for funding or inclusion. And then we have to jump through these hoops. And, and even just the process with applying for a grant from the federal, uh, from EPA's environmental justice program, you got to go through a, a, a grants.gov and a ID me, and, and then you got to go through their portal. And then you got to figure out looking at this, you know, 100 page monster of a proposal. By that time, you starving to death. Your lights is being cut off. Your stomach is growling. You need some support right then while you're also trying to figure out, you know, what are these cracks in, in, in my uh, in my community? Why is my pipes not working? Why does my toilet not flush properly? By the way, what is this smell? You hear from your, your neighbors, folks are literally passing out only to discover later on we're being exposed by vapor intrusion. Hmm. Vapor intrusion, like who, we're normal residents. We're forced to become these scientists and these, these you know, uh, specialists in these fields that we have no idea about until our bodies start to tell us, you better learn. If you want to survive, you better figure out, you know, what a PNA is or benzene or all these other things that are coming through our air and soil and water. You know, these are all elements in the earth that is hitting us that should not be because community is being exposed by all of these polluting sources that's been licensed and permitted to come into our communities. They tell us, well, you know, maybe, you know, consider moving. Well, how about consider not putting polluting industry in our communities? That was LaDonna Williams with Grassroots Environmental Justice Organization, All Positives Possible. You can watch the full conversation on our YouTube page. Coming up, a multimedia artist reflects on her work inspired by the climate crisis climate change and its causes and effects became really important sort of aesthetic and conceptual fodder. And then as I went deeper and deeper and deeper into that mode of thinking, I started also thinking about what are the links with colonialism, with capitalism, with empire, and the subsequent realities that we're facing right now due to climate change. That's up next. Sofia Cordova is a multimedia artist and musician whose work has been exhibited and performed nationally and internationally at institutions including SFMOMA, the Vincent Price Museum, and the ASU Museum. She currently has a piece included in the Whitney Museum's exhibit on Puerto Rican art in the wake of Hurricane Maria. In conversation with Ariana Brocious, Sofia described her experience in Puerto Rico during Hurricane Hugo in 1989. I was really young. I I couldn't have, I maybe was three, but I remember we lived on, I think it was the 11th floor of a building in Miramar. So Miramar, as the name suggests, overlooks the sea. So the winds were very, very felt. And it was a community that had a lot of elders. And I remember all of the folks from our floor just sort of organically started kind of coming to our apartment because my parents were young parents. I was a little kid. So we were sort of the best equipped to kind of host everybody. And I remember two things. One, that it was extremely 
I don't want to say scary, but there is this air of mystery when we're visited by these sort of events. There is such a way, they push us out of what we know in such a way that it actually starts to operate really differently on our modes of thinking and on our modes of being. And even at that young age, I remember the the sort of tension in the air from all of these people having to, in a sense, be relocated temporarily and come to our place. We, of course, immediately lost power. So I remember everybody also kind of gathering what they had and all of these little gas stoves kind of assembled all together. And I remember we made tortilla española and everybody ate. And that's the other part that I remember really vividly, that in the middle of this tension and this would-be fear and suspense, really, there was also this incredible network of care that appeared immediately. And we were able to sort of feed one another. And I remember that feeling like an anchor in what was otherwise very unsteady uh, ground, really. So you started introducing climate themes into your work in 2012. And can Mm -hmm. you tell us about the first piece where you did that? Yeah, so that was a series called Echoes of a Tumbling Throne, Odas al Fin de los Tiempos. I wanted to expand what how marginalization happens through colonial vehicles and empire. So I started working, thinking about work that would encompass all manner of colonized subjects, black and brown subjects, indigenous subjects, queer and trans bodies in the United States, um, because that's where I was living at the time. Um, but always internationalist, I should add. And I as I was sort of having that seed of a thought, I was also noticing that in 2012, there was this sort of great crackling in the air where uh, in the Western world, particularly, there was an obsession with the Mayan prediction of the end of days. And I just thought there was something tragic and comic about ascribing the ability to kind of foresee the end of days to a people that these very same European Western cultures Uh, say, can't have possibly built their own pyramids because those are architectural marvels. And to me, there's something really scary, but also worth challenging about that very kind of racialized view of the indigenous other, where there is like a conduit to spirit, but no conduit to intellect, um, which is, of course, how those same people, those same European peoples can justify colonial violence and enslavement um, and all of the other ills that followed. So with those two sort of grains in in my mind, I started thinking about the future. And I realized that I wasn't really interested in the kind of quote unquote apocalypse or this end of days moment, but that in thinking about the liberation of colonized black, brown, indigenous, queer, trans bodies, I was really thinking that the future was an incredible place to posit us because if we can imagine the total destruction of everything we know, every system that binds us, then even if it's after complete collapse, we can start anew. And that became a really exciting prospect. So I started working with other performers and placing these performers in front of a green screen and then creating these sort of what I call kind of... um, digitally corrupted ecologies, right? Where like the natural landscape becomes really glitchy and really crunchy. And at first they were just sort of these experiments and like people in place, but I'm a research-based artist. So as I sort of sat with what the conditions could be that led us there, um, without again being too apocalyptic and thinking of a single event, 
climate change kind of became the natural culprit, the natural kind of antagonist, just because of where we seem to be headed. Um, and as I sort of lived with that longer, the research started kind of infecting the work. And so in some of them, you see bodies in front of, again, very digitally corrupted footage taken by tourists of icebergs collapsing on these sort of like Arctic tours. So climate change and its causes and effects became really important sort of aesthetic and conceptual fodder. And then as I went deeper and deeper and deeper into that mode of thinking, I started also thinking about what are the links um, with colonialism, with capitalism, with empire, and the subsequent realities that we're facing right now due to climate change, right? How does the extraction of resources and bodies out of the Caribbean, out of West Africa, out of South America, um, within the Southern United States itself, how did those conditions accelerate climate and in turn, as we're living it now, put in precarity the very populations that have been harmed throughout? That's so interesting to hear you reference 2012 and thinking about the Mayan calendar and the predictions. I remember that. And to me, I think of 2012 and I immediately think of the drought. It was like a year of really intense drought in the Western U.S. And there was a lot of concern around, you know, is this a tipping point? Is this a place where we're going to finally take stock of water shortage and some of these things? Because, yeah. you know, it was really kind of getting in some places dire. Well, something so, about that really quickly is that it's funny how... As a species, we need these things narrativized, right? Like a drought conjures up an image and then maybe we can be led to action. But then the moment it's it sort of pushes away, we kind of go right back to the way we've been behaving. Absolutely. Um, and it's just I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I think it's really interesting and it and it speaks so much to how we tell stories and how we need to tell stories in order to actually take things on. And I think in a way... We haven't quite found how to tell the climate story in a way that we ourselves believe it. Yeah, yeah, it's a work in progress. <laughs> so in your mind, what's the role of activism in art and mm. art in activism? Yeah, that's an always a tricky question. I had a friend beautifully say it once where she said that art and activism are actually different medicine. I think that the two can certainly cross. And I think that, you know, when I think of, say, the protests of 2019 in Puerto Rico, um, how they were protests, they were bodies in the streets demanding change, but they were also musical. And they were also, in a sense, they were a performance, right? Each new act unfurled with like a new kind of aesthetic and, and sensorial experience. So I certainly think that in that flow of the stream, art has a lot to offer activism. On the other end, I worry in a sense when activism comes to visit the art because, or the art world, because I, I'm really quite cynical about the art world. The architects of the art world are actually quite linked um, to the people that create the problems that we're all struggling with in the world, whether it's weapons manufacturing or being oil barons themselves. So I, I'm always, I don't think that it's impossible. And I think some artists have certainly done it with like great effect and elegance, but I'm always a little wary about fitting in the practices of activism in the art world as we know it now, just because sometimes I worry that that's a mode of co-optation um, by these institutions in a way that lets them get away with what they were already doing. 
We had an interesting conversation on Climate One with Shepard Ferry a couple years mm. ago that also referenced some of those ideas and um, would be interesting for listeners to to check out. You've said that we're living in a time of ambiguity and that mm. that ambiguity can open us up to a space of radical imagination, which might mm. be the only thing that will get us through this time. Mm-hmm. So how can art inspire that radical imagination? I'm very invested in this idea of ambiguity because I think it provides us with a sense of slippage. It lets us look at what is and quite distinctly, I think in our specific moment, see the cracks through which it all is starting to crumble and it all starts to fall apart and not to always look at it on the sense of destruction. What can be, what can we fill that in with? And that's the place that I sort of want to coax this imaginatory kind of experience out of folks. And I think that that's what my work ultimately wants to do. And this is a good segue from the activism question, because rather than saying we all need to find modes to to be with activism, which I think is really important for all of us to do, I think the practice is important and it's daily. Um, I think the step beyond that, both within art and activism, because I think it's also a political question, is to imagine something that is completely beyond anything that has been imagined because the problems of our time require those types of solutions. Um, I think that the powers that be, whether it's capitalism or the way that it has fed into kind of the way that educational becomes an indoctrination tool towards capitalism and sort of the acceptance of U.S. empire particularly, um, I think that those machinations have very elegantly made us think that imagination is a child's thing, that it's for play. And I would posit that rather play and thinking in these quote unquote childlike ways are actually things that we've evolved to carry with us as a mode of thinking through our problems. And I think that it brings us another point of connection with systems and um, patterns within the natural world that we are part of. You know, we we have such a fundamental um, understanding of ourselves as separate from all of these systems and patterns where, in fact, we are part of it. And I think that imagination and play puts us back into that sort of rhythm. And once we allow ourselves to be in that slipstream, we hopefully can give ourselves not just permission, but agency to imagine something different because it's up to us. Radical imagination can be and should be uh, really beautiful collective work because I think that once we're all in this space where we have given ourselves this agency to take control of what is possible in our minds, right? Essentially decolonize our own minds. And if we start doing this in Congress, then what can start to happen? Um, every new strange idea meeting another new strange idea can actually start to create sinew that becomes actionable. Capitalism is a really elegant thing that someone imagined and then made and, and then made real, you know, many somebodies. But still, something that I always come back to with this conversation is brilliant Ursula K. Le Guin um, when she writes in her nonfiction work, right? Like the divine right of kings used to be something that was considered permanent and eternal and it's been done away with, right? So it's possible. It really is. Mm-hmm. Another theme that comes through in your work is this uh, focus on wanting to move us away from an anthropocentric view, right? And you have a piece titled, The Gentle Voice That Talks to You Won't Talk Forever. 
that was inspired by a thousand-year-old cherry blossom tree that lives outside the Fukushima spill site. Mm -hmm. So before we get into talking about the piece itself, can you describe it for our radio and podcast audience? Yeah. So that work is actually an installation. So when you walk in, it's a room where the lights have been gelled sort of softly pink. And the first thing you encounter is a dove that has been dyed like a kind of baby pink standing on a Corinthian um, column. To the right of that, there is sort of a flickering video that is projected in bright light. So it looks very washed out of cherry blossoms with the sky having been digitally changed to various different colors. And along the way on the floor, you see coral that's this kind of same pinkish hue. And you see quartz that's been dyed this kind of pinkish hue. And a curtain that sort of cascades on the left side. And in it, there's these flowers that are playing this sort of audio track that kind of borrows from the Ace of Bass song. And that's where the, the, the refrain comes, the gentle voice that talks to you won't talk forever, where I'm sort of appropriating this pop moment and this pop motif to really hopefully right, create this sort of sense of augury in the song, create a sense of warning um, for our species that these warnings that are coming very discreet, discreetly and strongly from the natural world um, will stop coming one day and we'll just be in it. And give us a sense of why this, you know, you explain the inspiration came from this cherry blossom tree, but mm-hmm. um, maybe break that down. What, what about the tree yeah. inspired you and, and how that piece does this work of trying to feature non-human centered art, you know, or, or experiences? So I was in my research sort of thinking a lot about uh, actually thinking a lot about nuclear nuclear test sites out in the uh, U.S. American desert and just thinking about kind of, again, nuclear kind of spills and, and, and what resistance the zoological and biological world had created against it. And I found that there was this cherry blossom tree that is millennia old huge, beautiful, about 20 to 30 kilometers outside of the Fukushima spill site. And this cherry blossom had been the site of pilgrimage for people for thousands of years. And there is a really beautiful haiku written in 1884, I believe, that was written for it. And that's included in the work. That's sort of the only kind of presence of the human hand, other than the song, in that uh, installation. And when I found that, I was really fascinated by the fact that there was all of this sort of touristic infrastructure that had been built around it. So it's a huge old tree. So over the years, it had been pruned and sort of helped to grow in certain ways. And it had these sort of um, crutches, if you will, that were sort of holding it up in certain areas. And over the short period of time since the spill, and perhaps because of the spill, um, a lot of that infrastructure started to decay or break down or go away. Um, we know this because there was drone footage that was produced from that tree around the time it was expected to blossom. The other thing that that footage revealed, and this is where the inspiration comes from, is that the tree was blooming beautifully right after the spill. It didn't even take like a year off. It just had this beautiful bloom. And to me, there was something really poignant and beautiful about this organism blooming more beautifully than ever without the eyes that had kind of traveled to see it for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And to me, there was something really special about that experience, both as it 
points to a mode of resilience that's built into natural systems on our planet, but also as a negation of the view from a human perspective. So it inspired me to think about climate from a non-anthropocentric position. What if we start thinking of climate change as a tree or a bird or a stone or a coral reef? If we decentralize our own perspective as the foundational kind of primary perspective, what are we capable of doing? How are we capable of understanding the climate crisis? And I think that we would actually be far more adept at understanding it if we could extend that grace to other living forms on our planet. So you've spoken about how your own increasing awareness of the climate crisis has changed you as an artist. How has it changed you as a person? (laughs) That's a very heavy question. Um, You know, I think there was a moment, I think that maybe sums it up in um, 2015, so a long time ago now, uh, when I was working on Echoes of a Tumbling Throne. And again, when I started that work, I had this idea that I was sidestepping the idea of apocalypse itself. I didn't think about a certain event. I wanted to think about what was possible on the other end. But as I was living with the research and I was sitting with the contemporary moment, Sandra Bland had just been murdered by the police. There was no other way to describe it. I was just in despair. These facts and figures, the rising tides, the melting ice caps, all of that became unbearable. And so what I ended up putting, how I ended up putting that in the work is that that might be the beginning of where I start to kind of play with and coax out this idea of ambiguity. So I made the three characters that sort of embody that work be these sort of apparitions. I sort of imagine them as technorishas, right? So these sort of spiritual apparitions that are illegible in a sense. And they're saying something that feels really important and laden with meaning, but we are in a position where it's difficult to kind of unspool that. And that might seem in a sense despairing to the audience as well, but that's not necessarily an experience that I shy away from because I'm not interested in creating a situation or a narrative where we are exclusively given out rosy images of hope. No, our situation is dire. And so I think that was kind of maybe a way that I could metabolize it, right? Like live through the research myself while also infecting the work with it. And I use that word kind of intentionally because I think a lot about contamination and in a sense, this idea of hope and radical imagination also is maybe linked to this idea of contamination, right? Sort of spreading something from the work out and thinking about that as a condition that is already evidenced in how again, colonialism and capitalism have affected our lives. And these things are not, we can't undo them. They are already part of it. So the work wants to think through it, but the work also wants the audience to to think through it. And I think that's maybe how I've dealt with it. Often it's very despairing. Luckily, when I'm either here in Puerto Rico or in Northern California, I am very close to natural landscapes that cleanse me and remind me of geological time and that maybe this story isn't the most inborn story told on earth but that's very heady so (laughs) I think that that um 
connection with the natural world does that for many of us, right? Kind of grounds yeah. us and centers us back. Uh, reminding Looking us at of an our old place. rock really calms yeah. me down. <laughs> Sofia Cordova is a multimedia artist and musician. Thank you so much, Sofia, for joining us on Climate One. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Sofia Cordova's work on our website. On this Climate One episode, we've been talking about activism, art, and environmental justice. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about climate can be difficult and hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basili is our production manager who co-produced this episode. Our team also includes Sarah Catherine Coxon and Wensi Scheida. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>